We do begin today a 13-week study through the book of Ruth. If you did not get a Ruth booklet, just walk on back there and get you one. They're in the arcade as you walk in. They're either black or purple. Look, it's all the book of Ruth. One's got a few drawings in it and the other one doesn't. I got a black one because I like the uh, kind of the faint lines on the right-hand side that you can, uh, you can write in. I wanna say this, when we study through books, we, we do these when, when the books are small, short enough that you know, you're not carrying another big Bible around. This one you carry with your Bible. Um, this is not a substitute for your Bible. And so I, I wanna encourage you, uh, don't just bring this, bring your Bible and you know, set it on top of it. It's the size of most Bibles because when we're studying through any book, we're gonna be able, we wanna always see where that book fits in the 66 books, the story of redemption, redemptive history. And we also wanna be able to look at the book of Ruth. And when we do, we're gonna find that we've gotta go to other places within the Bible to see is it consistent with what we're saying and interpreting and saying, this is what Ruth is mean, this is what Ruth means and how we apply it. So we'll still be throughout our whole Bible, but we want you to have that booklet as well. In the Bible, if, uh, you know, I've got my Bible open to Ruth and you'll find it at the back end of Judges and just before 1 Samuel. And um, there, are different, there are different ways the Bible is put together in different versions. You know, this is what, what we normally see today with the 66 books. And, and I, like, I like it, and it's not inappropriate that it goes Judges, then Ruth. And you'll see why in a moment as we begin to unpack the book. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible, you all. It takes 17 minutes to read. It takes me 17 minutes to read it. Uh, my encouragement, and I know Rob would say this, is you know, if you have this and you keep this around, uh, we're gonna be in it 13 weeks. We'll go right up to Palm Sunday. We'll do Palm Sunday and Easter, not in Ruth. And then we'll have five more weeks after that. That'll be the conclusion. But if you'll, in those 13 weeks, if you'll read this 17 minutes sometime during the week, you will get so much more week by week as we unpack this story and its implications. It's, it's a short book and do you know God never, God never speaks in the book of Ruth, yet it illustrates one of the most important things about God and something that we, we absolutely need to know. And it's this, how does God work? You know, it's, it, there's a lot about who he is and all he is, but, but fundamentally, we, we need to understand how does God work in this world and in our lives? How does he do what he does? Um, the, the, the best, you know, the shortest, friendliest definition, I would say, of, of, of what's running through this book of Ruth and, and the, 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 the theological word is providence. So, so this is a book about God's providence, a theological term that means this at its basic essence. God is in control. Now that's when we can all get our heads around and you, know, you can say God's in control. And, and that's what we're gonna see through, uh, through our study through the book of Ruth. Uh, now, What's wonderful about the book is it's just an ordinary, these are ordinary people doing ordinary things in ordinary places. It's a book that's 3,000 years old, but I'm telling you, they're just scratching out a living, doing the best they can, making decisions, trying to walk with God, trying to honor the covenant. And, 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 and through this, it's, <laughs> it's gonna be fascinating how you see that all that's happening in their worlds is so similar to what is happening 
in ours. It, it's a book where there's no miracles. You know, people die and they stay dead. People get sick and they're not healed. It's a book about life and death, fullness and emptiness, hunger and then satisfaction. Um, if you've ever read The Grapes of Wrath, anybody, you know, if, I would recommend it. You know, it's, it's one of the great American novels, surely. But if you've read The Grapes of Wrath by the Dust Bowl, Steinbeck in that language, you know, you read it and you just feel dust all over you. You just feel the dryness, the hopelessness, the, you hear the hunger, the, the, the grumblings of ch children, people's empty stomachs, and it drives them to be dislocated and homeless. That's, if you, if you, if you get that, when you're there, you, you're gonna get the book of Ruth. You know, that's what this book creates within us. You go, gosh, was there another book we could have studied other than this one, you know, with the weight of that? And I go, well, no pun intended. In God's providence, we trust that this is where he wants us. And I do believe this. There are things that Ruth is gonna teach us that we need to know right now at this moment in our history as a church, as a people, as Americans, as Christians who are following God. This is a book we need to be in. I'll tell you on the front end, it is gonna be hard at many different levels, but it is a book that is loaded with hope. Uh, Rob and I have exchanged notes and conversations around it as we get started, like how do we start this and you know, how are we gonna tackle this, this issue of providence? And, and um, we just looked at each other and said, you know what, for some people in our body, I would say for many, this book's gonna trip you up, really. This is gonna be very troubling. But if we'll stick with it, it is loaded with hope. Um, I, I've said to people, if you can read the Old Testament, y'all, if you can read it and not step back at times and go, I don't know, I just... I, God did that, you know, or I don't understand this God that's being described. I, if you can't do that, I don't know that you've read it carefully. Now we're gonna do that together. We're gonna wrestle together with God's providence. You'll see the title's Ordinary Providence. Ordinary being the, it's an ordinary story of ordinary people, but then God's providence, that theological term. I already said it means God's in control, the, the perhaps one of the best definitions of providence that I, I will probably come back to over and over through the study is that which was hammered out by English and Scottish theologians in the 1600s when they were put together the, the Westminster Confession. And, and what came out of that is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And catechisms are how the early church taught, you learned principles and doctrines. And uh, I remember doing this with, uh, I did this with my son when he was little. We'd, we'd go and I'd have this little booklet of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know, what is the chief end of man? And it's chief end of school if I got and enjoy it. And you just go through these questions. Question 11, I'm gonna put it on the screen. It asks, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Now I want you to look at that definition. It, you know, you don't have to get this right, but, I could, but, but I'll get there. But there's a word in that definition that, that trips us up. 
there's, there's a word, it's said, it's, it's repeated. There's a word that, that will get us if, if, we're, if we're really believing that. You know, what, what word do you think that might be? Yeah, yeah. Do you see it says all? And it, it says it twice, all. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Does that mean every? Oh, that means every. That means all the time. Now, I'm gonna read the question and I want you to respond. You know, this is how they would teach it then and we can teach it now. So I'm gonna read the question and then I'll help you, but, but I want you to respond, just read it. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Now, I, I fully expected us to read that like that, a bit tentative maybe, you know, okay, yeah. And I would hope it, at the end of these 13 weeks, we'd be able to read it with a deeper conviction. Having wrestled it, I'm gonna tell you, we're not gonna get through Ruth and go, man, I got that figured out. I figured out God and his providence. No, we're not gonna get there. But I do trust, and Robin, I do trust that by the power of the spirit, we will get to a place where that all in that, in that statement, that we can hold it by faith we can hold it because I do believe it is what the Bible teaches. That said, this is where it gets so hard. Are you, wait, 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 okay. What about the abuse I suffered as a child? All? You saying my divorce, how does that fit in God's providence? What about Alzheimer's, cancer, these horrible diseases? Surely that's, no, that's, that comes from a pit. That's God's, how about the, what, what, where does one place the death of a child? What about my free will? I have a free will. So I get, he gave us free will to choose. What, how can he be in control, preserving and governing all, all? How about when the choices of others harm innocence? <laughs> like you didn't even choose, no, it was, that was, you see that if, if we really face it, it's troubling, it's a challenge. These are real questions about real life. And I want you to know, they reside in this room and right here at this podium. And we're not gonna ignore them or skim over them. Now, our answer may not satisfy but our hope is that we answer it biblically and let the scripture speak to this God whom we sing about and worship. Well, there's a phrase I'm gonna give you. You don't need to write it down because you already know it. And this phrase we need to bring to every verse we read in Ruth. And the phrase is this, there's more than meets what? The eye. There's more than meets the eye. When you read this book, there's more than meets the eye. It's not, I'm not saying we're gonna allegorize or read between the lines and, and come up and handle it unbiblically. We wanna handle it biblically, but I'm telling you, there's always in Ruth more than meets the eye. We're gonna start in Ruth chapter one, verse one, and we're gonna cover a monster passage today. We're gonna cover verse one. 
That's where we're gonna start in verse one. I'm gonna stop in verse one. But in verse one, there's more than meets the eye. And that verse is gonna enable us to do two things. Set the historical context, so important. We gotta go, what was the world like for Ruth and Naomi? What was the world like historically? We gotta set it in that context. So it enables us to do that. And then secondly, it helps us understand, excuse me, the, where it fits in redemptive history, uh, where this story lands. So his, uh, historical context, that's, that's what this first section's gonna be. And we'll start Ruth chapter one, verse one. God's word to us today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And we'll stop there. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, we've, the first question we gotta ask is, well, what were those days? What were those days like? And y'all, the clearest answer is found just to your left, if you're in your Bible, in the last verse of Judges chapter 21. Judges chapter 21 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Gotta get that. That's when this story's happening. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I'm gonna pick this one first. Let me grab this one. In the book of Judges, historically, when does this happen? And this tells us when Ruth happens. Um, the nation of Israel has come out of 400 years of bondage. Okay, they're in the wilderness. Moses is leading them. God has promised them a land that he's taking them to. They go through the wilderness. They don't go in when they, God told them to go in. And so there's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. A whole generation dies off, those who didn't trust God. And so now their children are old enough. Moses dies. Joshua steps in as God's leader and Joshua leads into the conquest of the land. So Joshua goes in as a, as a general of sorts and conquers this promised land, allots the land to the various tribes. And so we're at a point in, hit, I mean, y'all, if, if the line goes like this, like bondage is below the line and they come out of bondage and they go through the wilderness and they come to, they're at the, they're at the, peak of existence, if I can say that. We're in the land. Right here is where Judges begins. And, and I'll, you already know this. We're in the land. And right here, the line starts going like this. It's this that's the story. When they got there, this is when they start dropping. Now, the way we see this is in the book of Judges, there's a, there are seven cycles. Like they do this, this is what happens. People view these cycles in different ways. They have different terms that they would put on it, but there are seven cycles. It's a 200 year history of these seven cycles. I've got it drawn. I just penciled this in so you can look at this and I wanna walk you through these cycle, this cycle. Okay, they are in the land. Everything is awesome. We are in the, the land God has promised. And we didn't even plant these crops or build these cities. And they're ours by God's grace. 
What do we do next? Well, it starts with disobedience. It starts with unbelief. And God says, don't marry the people of the land. You need to remain a distinct people of God in this redemptive history that God is working out to bring Christ. Don't worship their gods. And they did it all. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. And that led to discipline. And I put the word bondage. So, so when, when they sinned and disobeyed God, their enemies would conquer them. Now, we're talking like this is physical enemies would conquer them, beat them, and put them in bondage. Metaphorically, you could say their sin put them in bondage. Well, it got so bad that they would, and this, you know, they would eventually go, God, we messed up. Would you help us? Get us out of this. You know, this is, they cry out is their call. So that was desperation. And when they cried out, God then sent a deliverer or they had deliverance and that was through a judge. Now in the book of Judges, it's not a judge like a courtroom judge. The one way to think about this is this isn't, this isn't wholly appropriate or true, but it helps us is that they needed a superhero. So the Marvel character showed up. That's kind of how this happened. And, and a judge would show up. Now these judges were quite frankly, deeply flawed. But the judge would come and the judge would rise up and rally the troops and beat up the enemy and kick them out. And all of Israel would go, thank you, thank you. And they would be in a place of delight. Uh, they would be in a place of peace. Okay, okay, the enemy's gone, we're peace. How long do you think that would last? Yeah, sometimes 40 years, you know, a couple decades, sometimes less, whatever. The, the, the thing about a cycle is it's a cycle. <laughs> so it'd be wonderful it ended right there. But then guess what they did? They disobeyed. And y'all, it just, it just went over again. Well, let's do this again, seven times. The first judge, when you read the book of Judges, the first judge was flawed, but okay. Every judge after got worse. To the story ends with the last judge, who was a man named Samson. And while we, you know, it's, you gotta be careful with Samson because you kind of go, wait, he's one of our heroes? Let's just say he was a man God used to deliver the nation. I, there's not a lot else, quite frankly, I'm being serious. There's not a lot else to emulate of a man named Samson. So they just degraded, you know, even as the nation, the cycle almost goes like this. Yeah, it goes down and down and down. Now, I want you to look up at the screen and I wanna ask you this question Remove it from its historical context in Judges and just let me ask you, does that cycle look sort of familiar to you? Like, like, like look at it and go, wait, okay, disobeyed. You know what I'm saying? Right? That it's a picture of, it's a picture of you and me. This is, this is a picture of, of, of Christians. This is a picture of God's people. This is what we do. This is what I, please know, this is what I do. And in this way, we're gonna get into this book of Judges and, and Judges, or get into the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth, in a sense, gives us, I wanna be careful how I say it, but it gives us a roadmap of sorts. It gives us some principles. It gives us some ways that we go, oh, that's the nature of biblical faith. And it's biblical faith that breaks this cycle. And you'll see that as I give an overview of Ruth here in a moment. It's like, oh, that's, that's what faith looks like. 
That's what it means to live in, in delight, if I could say that, to live in peace, to live in, in relationship with God and walk with him. Well, these were super dark days. By the way, I don't expect you to do this per se, but some of you may. Um, the book of Judges will set you up for Ruth because just know Ruth is happening in these days. And y'all, there are things in Judges that are appalling. Really, I, I, I say this to you. It's like, that is so gross and wrong. That's the days of Ruth. Um, when it says everyone does what's right in their own eyes, I wanna take it to one more level. When people are living that way, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. The way you survive is you try and find other people who see it like you do. And if you can get enough people who see it like you do, you get over here and you go, yeah, we're right and everyone else is wrong. And the way you stay, the way you defend your tribe is power. And you'll do anything to get power so that you can be with all the people who see things the way you do, because we, we, you know, we see it the way we do, and you guys are totally wrong, and we're gonna crush you. Now remove that from its historical context, I mean this, and put it in ours. And we're standing in that in our day, in our country, in Christendom, so to speak, a sense to which we're just, you know, you gotta find people who see it the way you do and we're gonna stick with them. Well, there's a reason they did that and it's that second phrase, there was no king in Israel. Let me ask you this, this is not a trick question. There was no human king in Israel in these days. But did Israel have a king? That's the big deal. You're nodding. Yes, yes, yes. God is Israel's king. See, so they had a king. But they rejected their king to do what was right in their own eyes. And this is the way, y'all, I mean this. It's a 3,000-year-old story. It's a current story. It's a relevant story for you and I today. Verse one says this, secondly, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. I wanna, I wanna open the curtain on this for our Western eyes to go, what did the original audience feel and see when they read that sentence. And I will tell you this, what they saw was a sentence dripping with irony. <laughs> we don't see it as media, but you will, and many of you already do. But okay, there, there, there's a famine in the land. Well, we, first thing we would note is the land is the promised land. And when God promised Abraham a land and repeatedly and promised Moses, we're gonna get you into this land, he said, I'm putting you in a land that is flowing with what? Idiom in that day, it's just basically this. I'm gonna put you in a resource-rich land. I'm gonna put you in a land where you don't need to worry about what to eat. You're gonna have so much, you could export food, you're gonna have so much food and it's gonna be good food. <laughs> that's, the, that's what he promised them. And so immediately we go, there's a famine in the place of milk and honey? What's, you know, what's wrong? What's going on? There's a second irony because this man was from Bethlehem and you all know this, many of you do. We talk about it every Christmas. Bethlehem, it means 
house of bread. And so now, oh, what? There's a man from the house of bread in the land of milk and honey. And they got nothing to eat? <laughs> Something is awry here. And God had made, you know, God had said, do this and I will do this. You do this and you will experience this. And they're experiencing the this on that side. Um, one last irony, and Rob will cover this next week, but the very beginning of verse two, it simply says, the, the name of the man was Elimelech. And I'm only grabbing this to say this. Ironically, his name means my God is king. And you go, wait, my God is king. That's who you are. And yet you're, you're, leaving, you're leaving the land, God's land, and you're going to Moab. Now I'm saying that in the way that I think it's, it's sit here. Moab, like Moab. Because here's the other irony. Moab, that was the nation that when, when Israel was in the wilderness and they had to pass through other nations to get where they're going, one of the places they passed through was Moab. And get this, the Israelites are related to Moabites. <laughs> they're kinsmen, okay? But when Israel needed Moab, listen to what God says of Moab. This is Deuteronomy 23, um, verse four. He says, for they, the Moabites, they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. See, now the people, original readers would know this history. This is George Washington across the Delaware. You know, we'd all know. Moab, they weren't even there for us. You know, and he's going to Moab. It was God's judgment on Moab was so severe, y'all, at this time in this particular verse. He tells Moses, don't let a Moabite in the tabernacle. Ooh, that's, you know where this story's going? There's a Moabite girl. Don't let a Moabite in. Don't, that's like saying, don't let a Moabite get near me. And you go, wait, God, you love all people. Now remember, redemptive history. God is working out the plan of salvation through Christ through redemptive history. And what's true here is not true when Christ comes. It's all preparing the way for, for all people to come to God, but not at this time in history. He's shaping a nation that's distinct from all other nations through whom Christ would come. But, but that's why I say this. I, and, and Rob and I've talked about this. It's, I don't know that, I don't know that Elimelech's sinning, rejecting God or whatever. I, we can't say that. I don't know his motives. I'm gonna tell you this. And I think any mother or father in the room would say this. If my child needed food and was dying of starvation, I'm not talking about they hadn't had Chick-fil-A in a week. You know, I'm talking about you're dying of starvation. I would steal. Did, did you, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I really, I, I would do whatever to put a food in my, so I don't, I don't wanna throw a limelech under the bus. With that said, the author is giving, a, it's like, you know, it's, 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 a literature, it's literature and he's giving us hints that the audience would go, not Moab. You know, that's the, that's the sense to which we would feel, not Moab. That's the historical context. 
days of disunity, rejection of God, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. There's no king, we'll do what we want. We'll gather up our, this is the days of Ruth. A quick overview of Ruth, very easy, I'm gonna do this. Four statements, look up on the screen. You know the story, most of you know it, but here's the chapter, here's category headings for these chapters. Chapter one, God's providence is hard. You know how the story begins? Elimelech and Naomi and the two boys go to Moab. Um, the two boys marry. The dad, Elimelech and the two boys die. Chapter one ends with three widowed women in a foreign land, uh, Naomi's in a foreign land with no food. You could not give a better picture of hopelessness than that. That's what's happening in the first chapter. And then I, I say God's providence is hard to see. So Naomi and Ruth, you'll get, we'll get here. There's the first, two, first of the two main characters along with a third in a moment. They, they go back to Bethlehem because they hear there's food there. And when they get there, they, the, the, the author tells us there's a relative there named Boaz. They're the three characters that you need to know in this story. Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. The guy named Boaz is there. And, and the reader, when we read chapter two, y'all, we are gonna see things that Naomi doesn't see. Because we'll read it and go, God's in that. God's in it, but you can't see. And that's why I say God's providence is hard to see. Chapter three, I put it this way, God's providence works with your faith. Why? This is an amazing chapter. It all happens under the cover of darkness. This is one of those chapters where you're reading it to your children, children and you go, okay, I need to, you need to not read this part. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's, there's whoopee going on here and we need to, don't, you need to read about that. Well, it's, it's totally appropriate when we understand it historically in its context. But in this part of the story, we, we understand that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. We'll get to this, but it's when, a, when, a, when, a, when there's a widow, there, if, if, the, if there's a relative of the husband, a brother, the brothers to marry that widow, to carry on the name, to redeem her from her hopeless situation, to give her a future. And, and Boaz is, that, is, is one of those redeemers for her. We see that. But we also see Ruth take an audacious step of faith. We're gonna see that through the whole book, but she takes an audacious step of faith. And that's where I say God's providence, it's not like you know, we're puppets and God's providence just, oh, do this, do that. No, God's providence works with our faith to achieve his purposes. And finally, God's providence brings our good and his glory. We get to the end of the story and there's more than meets the eye at the end of this story. And we see that God is working his plan and purpose in far greater ways than we could ever fathom. Now I'm gonna go through the four chapters one more time. And I'm gonna put a word on each one. So in the first chapter, I'd put that word this. It's about weeping. It's about weeping. The second chapter is about work, working. The third chapter is about waiting. And the last chapter is about worshiping. So now I've taken the focus off of God's providence and put it on me and you. So if I read through the book of Ruth, I'd say, okay, it's about weeping, me, me, me weeping, me weep, me working, me working, us working. No, it's about us waiting. Oh, it's about waiting. And it's about me worshiping. And those four words I would suggest are a picture of biblical faith. 
weeping, working, waiting, worshiping. We would love to go from weeping to worship, but there's not a straight line from weeping to worship. No, that path takes a sometimes torturous route, quite frankly. I don't think that's too strong a word, difficult route through working and waiting to get to worshiping. Do you see that? So this is a way to look at the book of Ruth as emblematic of faith and what, what, what faith looks like. So with that, let me give you two things to consider and then I'm gonna ask you to apply it. The first thing would be this. No one gets through this life without weeping. Some of us, um, I, I thought about using the word wailing, but I thought, well, some people will reject that outright. It's too much. But the truth be told, it's a better word. And there are some of us in the room who would say, no, the word is wailing, not just weeping, Lloyd. But we'll stick with weeping so more of us can get it. I say no one gets through this life without weeping because in this fallen world and these fallen bodies with uh, enemies of our soul, uh, the world, um, the devil and our flesh, uh, it, it hurts. Bad things happen. And if you've not wept at life, I would say, and again, I know some personalities go, man, I'm just not a crier or whatever. And what I'm trying to say here is, I, I get it, you may not cry these tears, but if your heart hadn't been crushed and broken, God's providence has not crushed you yet. And you, and you may go, well, it, I hope it never does. Well, it will. <laughs> it will. Now, why would I be so strong on that? And that's the second point. The providence of God that crushes us is the providence that gives us life. Why would I, why would, Lord, why would you say it's going to? Look, I, I know people who've lived, gone through life and never had it. You don't know them, you know, you don't know their story. The providence of God that crushes us is the providence that gives us life. There's no life apart from the crushing providence of God. Well, Lloyd, I don't know, Lloyd. This, how do you, well, let me just take you here. You're not gonna turn there, but I want you to listen to these words. 700 years before Jesus is born, before he suffers and dies, Isaiah the prophet writes in chapter 53 of Isaiah, of Christ, of the God-man Jesus, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. He was despised and we did not care but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so he could be, so we could be healed. I just want you to get those words in the life of Jesus. The, the man who lived life to the fullest. Despised, rejected, sorrows, deepest grief, pierced, crushed, beaten, whipped. This is, this is Jesus. This is the path to life. Now, he, he did this for our redemption, but here's the kicker, okay? Verse 10, but it was the Lord's good pleasure, good plan to crush him and cause him grief. And you step back from that and I go, I can't go there. No, no, no. 
other passages, other translations. It was the father's good pleasure to crush the son. And we back away from that. And we go, that couldn't be God's pleasure. That could not be, no. A lot of people reject the faith because of that. But that's what God has revealed of himself. Now, the rest of Isaiah's passage says, and God did this so that God would have many sons and daughters but it took the crushing of the son. Does that, it took the crushing of the son to bring him many sons and daughters. That's how we're redeemed and given a right standing with our father. Jesus is our model, you all. Jesus is the model of weeping, working, waiting, and worshiping. And he didn't weep and then worship. No, weeping, working, waiting, suffering, and worship. This is the path of faith. And it was the father's providence that crushed, his, that crushed his son. William Cowper, 1773, wrote in God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It's a hymn he wrote. And I'm just taking the one stanza and I think it says it best. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Here's our invitation to life. I'm gonna invite Brian to come back out because we're gonna, there's a prayer. We're gonna pray corporately, but individually, here's where I wanna invite you to wrestle with the Holy Spirit. We're not, we never study our Bible just to know the Bible. We, we study God's word to be transformed by the word. That transformation happens not because you took notes and now you understand Ruth, but because the spirit spoke to you and now you get to choose a step of faith. You get to apply Ruth. We'll be doing this week by week because we always do this. And the invitation to life is this. There's more than meets the eye in God's providence. Y'all, there's always more that meets the eye in God's providence. And so I'm gonna ask you just to finish this statement for yourself. This is very individual. Therefore, I will. And I do not know what, how you would finish that sentence. Therefore, I will. But I do know as Brian started us, we all in different places, whether you're down in the valley or going down or barely coming up, whatever it may be, but in the valley, where, whatever that place is in your life, you're struggling with God's providence. Can you say there's more that meets the eye when it comes to God's providence? Therefore, I will. And it may be, I will, God, I will trust you with this situation. Therefore, I will take a step of faith, even though I, it's hard for me to do, whatever it may be. Would you do that, Ryan? Just pause. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. There is more than meets the eye in God's providence. Therefore, I will. And you answer that. I also wanna invite us to make a corporate application. So that's individual. This is together. I wanna ask you to consider this. Um, Chad, Chad Cates, Lindsay Mattingly, 
uh, Luke Brown, worship leaders, Chad's a songwriter. Uh, they wrote a prayer that I'm, I wanna ask you, would you make this your prayer? Now, Brian's gonna sing the prayer over us. And as he sings this prayer over us, my, my encouragement is, you don't have to sing it, but would you make it your prayer? It's a prayer of faith. This is, this is a prayer of faith. And this is what, get, what, what will get you from weeping to worship and through this is that you're confident that God keeps his promises. That's what, that's what, what we move through this. God, you're gonna keep your promise in spite of. And so just sit in it, but make this prayer your own. <laughs>